Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You never guess from a title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Downey, I'm your host, I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh and I do a thing in the city, it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh and what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is, that is what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this episode, you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about King James VI and his obsession with witches and the North Berwick witch trials of 1590 that sparked several satanic panics in Scotland, which incidentally, by the way, would be an amazing be- an amazing name for a heavy metal band, that, wouldn't it? Satanic Panic. We're Satanic Panic and this is our new single, Hail Patel. Sorry, Satan. Thousands of innocent, mainly women, were tried, tortured, strangled and burnt at the stake as witches in Scotland. James, he blamed most of society's ills on witches the same way that the Tories blame immigrants and poor people. There was fear and paranoia. Anyone could be accused of being a witch. Women who were grumpy, women who walked with a limp, were left-handed or had a hairy lip could be accused of being a witch. I mean, my granny would have had absolutely no chance. But thousands of people suffered because of this one man's obsession, this one king, this one insipid, sweaty, balding, orange, misogynistic, xenophobic, small-handed, pussy-grabbing prick of a king. But it's going to be very, very difficult to put it in any kind of 21st century context for you folks. You know, very, very difficult indeed. Now listen, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, right, this is the sort of thing that you should expect, alright? I'm not going to lie to you, this is mainly Scottish history mixed with a lot of Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the start? All of the episodes, they go in chronological order, they give it a bit, they give a bit of background into the episode that follows. They're all named as well, so if you want, you can jump in at... Mary Queen of Scots or Robert the Bruce or William William Wallace. Basically, if you're listening for the first time, go through the back catalogue. That's what I'm suggesting. Right, anyway, so folks, without further ado, here is your podcast all about James VI and his obsession with witchcraft and Satanism. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! For such a renowned intellectual, James had a, a curious obsession with sorcery and witchcraft. In 1597, he published a remarkable tract called Demonology, which laid out a lot of his beliefs on witches, witchcraft and Satanism. It was James's Mein Kampf, basically, just replaced the word Jews with witches and you've pretty much got it. The publication of Demonology had a profound effect that led to a satanic panic in 1597, the year of its publication. In 1597, at least 400 people were put on trial for witchcraft in Scotland and in total, over 4,000 people were tried for witchcraft in Scotland over a series of panics at the end of the 16th and early to mid 17th centuries. Now this number is far larger compared to Europe or neighbouring England which has 10 times the population but tried far fewer witches. We became adept at murdering witches thanks to our world-beating witch 
Track and Trace app, which was killing thousands and thousands of people. James became more sceptical of witches as his reign progressed, but such was his obsession at the time he inherited Queen Elizabeth's throne in 1603, William Shakespeare felt it necessary to include the witches in Macbeth, first performed in 1606, to appeal to the king. It's also why there's a, a Slytherin house in Harry Potter as well. That was to appease the current royal family who uh, needed a, a, a house for Prince Andrew. Shakespeare wrote Macbeth, the Scottish play, because he had a new Scottish king. So he wrote about James's supposed ancestors. Not that Macbeth is all that Scottish, in my opinion. You know, I mean, like, William Shakespeare doesn't use the C word once. Like, if Macbeth really is the Scottish play, then Macbeth, he would be cunt of glamis, cunt of cawdor, and cunt thereafter. James's obsession with witches can be traced back to his marriage to Princess Anne of Denmark in 1589. The two had been married in proxy in Denmark in August of 1589, and when Anne attempted to sail to Scotland, her ship was blown off course, and they were forced to take shelter in a Norwegian fjord. Um, if they had been shipwrecked in Sweden, they'd have sheltered in a, in a Volvo, not a fjord. Anyway, uh, the Danish admiral who was in charge of the fleet, he blamed the storms on witchcraft. <laughs> the admiral blamed North Sea sea conditions on witches and not the weather. I mean, Donald Trump would one million percent have made that guy head of the Navy, wouldn't he? James, he decided to sail to Norway to rescue his bride in October 1589, and he spent six months travelling in the court of his new brother-in-law, Kristen IV of Denmark. And while he was in the Danish king's court, James debated a range of subjects with his Scandinavian counterparts, including demonology and sometimes Doctor Who as well. In the summer of 1590, there were witch trials in Denmark where it was ruled a coven of witches had gathered at a weaver's house and conjured demons to climb the keels of the ship carrying Princess Anne to Scotland to try and destroy it. Twelve women were sentenced to burn at the stake in the Danish witch trials of 1590. When James and Anne returned to Scotland in the spring of 1590, the ship carrying the couple was also battered by severe storms which James taking a leaf out of his Danish in-laws book, blamed on witches. They arrived at Leith on the 1st of May 1590 and immediately James demanded an investigation was launched to uncover the coven of witches who had cursed the king's ship. James's investigation into witchcraft took place over the summer and into the winter of 1590, coinciding with the witch trials in Denmark at that time. Over 100 people, mainly women, from the East Lothian seaside town of North Berwick were accused, tortured and an unknown number executed for witchcraft and cursing the King's Crossing from Denmark. The witches, they were accused of gathering at St Andrew's Kirk, situated on North Berwick seafront, where they summoned the devil, dug up corpses from the graveyard, hacked off their limbs, tied them to cats and threw them into the sea. Drowning cats being what? you know, Pretty Patel does with her weekends. But I mean, it's it's plainly ridiculous, all this though, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to use cats to cause a storm, surely you would go for Thundercats, wouldn't you? The accused witches included a schoolmaster from Preston Pans, the daughter of a judge, the wife of an Edinburgh Burgess, and a midwife as well. They were all very middle class, these witches. You know, this was North Berwick after all. Like, presumably, the main ingredient in their cauldron was avocado, you know? 
Several torture methods were used to bring about an inverted commas confession from the accused witches. These included a scold's bridle. Now, a scold's bridle is like a big iron muzzle contained within an iron framework from which sharp prongs protrude and are forced into the victim's mouth, holding the tongue in place and making it impossible for them to move their head or open their mouth. The Inquisitors, they would basically use anything they could find from Christian Grey's Red Room, including thumbscrews, breast rippers, which unfortunately do exactly what it says in the tin, ladies, and the boots. These were iron boots into which wooden wedges were hammered in the space between the victim's leg and the boot until the bones in the legs and feet were crushed, broken, or dislocated. It's like playing your, your first game of football when you get a new pair of football boots, you know? The most common torture method that was used, however, was sleep deprivation. Victims, they were kept awake for days on end until they made delirious confessions about driving to check if they were blind or not. James involved himself in many of the trials of the accused North Berwick witches at Holyrood Palace. And he was relatively sceptical of the Inquisitor's findings until the trial of one of the accused, Agnes Sampson. Now, Agnes was an East Lothian midwife, and during her trial, she whispered into the king's ear intimate and private details of his wedding night that only he and his wife Anne could have known about. Like, it must have been anal, right? It must have been. I feel like anyone could have guessed few pumps and fall asleep, you know? Uh, it, it must have been. Whatever it was that Agnes said, it convinced the king of her satanic credentials and James was an avid believer in sorcery and witchcraft thereafter. Agnes, she was tortured, strangled and then burned at the stake. Only in Scotland were victims strangled before being burnt. Strangling was believed to release the devil trapped within the witch. The bald, tortured ghost of Agnes Sampson is said to haunt the Palace of Holyrood to this day with regular sightings reported Although, it should be noted that a lot of these sightings of a bald, tormented ghost do tend to coincide with when Prince Philip is staying at the palace, so it could just be a coincidence, is what I'm saying. It should also be noted, before looking too deeply into Agnes's mystical knowledge of James's wedding night, that court superiors were often witness to royal marriage consummations to prove legitimacy and since agnes was from a baronial family it was perfectly plausible that she had heard details of the royal wedding night through kind of gossiping court superiors or you know maybe she was supernatural maybe she really was a witch i'll let i'll let you lot make your minds up most accused witches were women who were said to have healing powers or sold herbal remedies, oils and powders. When their homeopathic remedies didn't work, it was easy to accuse them of being witches. Certainly easier than getting your money back off of Herbalife anyway. In truth, however, anyone could be accused of being a witch. As I mentioned in the introduction, if you had a deformity, a limp, if you were left-handed, if you had a hairy lip, these were common reasons that people were accused of being witches or you know, played for Aberdeen Football Club. Any reason could be used to accuse someone of being a witch. Like my neighbour, for example, right? In the 17th century, I could have that Mumford and Sons dressing, factor dodging, dog fouling prick accused of being a witch. As it is, I'm just, you know, merely reduced to stealing his mail, you know? And accused witches, they were always encouraged under torture to implicate other witches as well. The Witchcraft Act that was passed by Parliament in 1563 
It was repealed in 1736. By the 18th century, the religious fervour of the 16th and 17th centuries had come to an end and few believed in witches and witchcraft anymore. The last person convicted of witchcraft in Scotland was Janet Horne in Dornick in 1727. Janet, she was accused of turning her daughter into a pony and riding her to meet with the devil. Kind of my little pony devil edition. Like that's one deal that Donald Trump would make, wouldn't it? He would definitely make a deal with the devil event he got to ride his daughter. The truth was that poor Janet, she was going senile and her daughter had deformities on her hands and feet. Janet, she was stripped naked, smeared with tar, paraded through the town in a barrel and then burnt alive. It's kind of like the, the Dornick version of Uphelia. Janet Horn's ghost on fire, screaming curses at people. It still haunts Dornick to this day, although, you know, it's pretty difficult to tell her apart from the locals there, you know? Those accused of being witches were sometimes subjected to pricking to determine whether they were indeed witches or not. Now, pricking involves using needles to prick the skin and find the spot where the accused had been marked by the devil. It's also an initiation ritual when you join the Tory party. Well, I mean that and, you know, fucking a dead pig in the head. But if you were pricked and you didn't feel pain, this was the spot at which the devil had marked you and it proved you were a witch. On other occasions, accused witches, they were subjected to a trial by ordeal. Now, trial by ordeal is probably the most well-known witch trial, but it was relatively uncommon. In a Scottish trial by ordeal, the accused witch would be tied to a duking stool. Their right thumb would be tied to their left big toe, and their left thumb tied to their right big toe. They were then lowered into the water. This, incidentally, is how Scottish school children are still taught to swim to this day. We have the highest number of escapologists and child drownings in the world. In Edinburgh, accused witches would be duked in the putrid water of the city's Norloch. Now, the Norloch is where all of Edinburgh's waste would end up. It was a great big, gigantic, disgusting cesspool located where current-day Princess Street Gardens and Waverley Station are. King James III, he had this part of the city flooded in the 15th century to protect from invasion from the English. That's right, we were defending ourselves with our own shite. That's a, that's a scene they cut out of Braveheart, that one. Do you know what I mean? The one when we're just lobbing jobbies at the enemy like they're hand grenades. The accused witch would be lowered into the Norloch, and if they floated, it meant the water was rejecting them in the same way that they had rejected the Lord on the day of their baptism. They would be taken from the water, strangled and burned at the stake. If the accused sunk, it meant they were innocent. I mean, they were dead, but they were innocent, and solace could be taken from the fact that they had died a good Christian death. You know, drowning in disgusting jobby water. Now, trial by ordeal was rare since it was so unreliable. An example of this occurred in Edinburgh in 1629, when a woman called Isabel Young was accused of being a witch. And Isabel, she was lowered into the Norloch and she sunk to the bottom. Now, this should have proved her innocence. But Isabel hadn't read the script, because she reappeared at the opposite side of the loch where she crawled out alive. And this gave the Inquisitors a dilemma. If you survive a trial by ordeal, are you innocent or are you not? So they duked poor Isabel again, and this time she didn't quite float and she didn't quite sink. She kind of bobbed. And what did this mean? Was Elizabeth was Isabel, sorry, half witch, half human, like a kind of Scottish bleed? 
it was deemed close enough. Listen, this group of men had come for a good woman drowning, stroke, strangle burning, and they didn't want their fun to be ruined. And you know what they say, if at first you don't succeed, duke and duke again. Isabel, she was strangled and burned at the stake on Edinburgh's Castle Hill, and... A trial, a trial by ordeal, they were pretty uncommon and they were simply horrific. I mean, they were impossible to survive. It was a bit like being a, a guest at a Michael Barrymore pool party. Float or sink, either way you were completely fucked. There are many stories of witches being strangled and burned in Scotland, but probably the most well-known is that of Major Thomas Weir. Now, Thomas Weir, he was the head of the Edinburgh Town Guard in the mid-17th century. He was a major in the Covenanting Army and persecuted Episcopalians and Royalists with zeal. Now, Episcopalians are Protestants who have a, a similar church structure to that of the Catholic Church, with bishops, archbishops, all that kind of stuff. The Episcopal Church in Scotland in the 17th century had a similar structure to the Anglican Church in England. I've explained this on in previous podcasts. And Royalists, well, they were those who fought against the extreme Presbyterian Covenanters in Scotland and the Parliamentarians in England in the War of the Three Kingdoms during the reign of Charles I and Charles II. And again, I'll explain this, or at least try to, in upcoming podcasts. The point is that Thomas Weir was a very, very religious man. He was a hardline Presbyterian. He was extremely religious and he was the leader of a group of Puritans known as the West Bow State, the West Bow Saints, who I think had a hit in the mid-90s. He lived with his sister Greasel in a house in Edinburgh's West Bow, from which he would preach fire and brimstone sermons to his dedicated followers. But then one day in 1670, instead of the usual fire and brimstone sermon, Major Weir confessed to being a witch. He claimed to be in the service of the devil, and he divulged a life of sin, crime, vice, and even bestiality and incest. Major Thomas Weir claimed he was in an incestuous relationship with his unmarried sister, and he confessed to impregnating his stepdaughter and sending her off to be married to an Englishman, making her marry an Englishman being the most awful thing imaginable at the time. No one believed that such a, a prominent member of the community, such a saintly figure, could possibly be involved in witchcraft. They were convinced that Major Weir, or Angelic Thomas, as he was known, which, you know, to be fair, does make him sound like a serial killer. Well, they were convinced that he just lost his mind, and they tried to reason with him, but the Major was adamant he was a witch and medical help was sought. The doctors, they declared Weir to be mentally disturbed, and the authorities, they reluctantly arrested him. Thomas Weir, he was kept in Edinburgh's notorious Tollbooth prison while further investigations were made. When the authorities spoke to Thomas Weir's sister, Greasel, remarkably, instead of pleading her brother's innocence, she backed up the claims that the Major had made. She told the authorities that she and her brother both possessed the mark of the devil, and she proudly pointed at a horseshoe-shaped birthmark on her forehead. Uh, although these days the devil's moved on from horseshoes, you know, he uses a, a tiny wee apple with a bite out of it, and that's his mark these days. She confessed to an incestuous relationship with her brother, and she said that Major Weir drew his powers from the, the well-known giant Black Staff that he would stride the streets of Edinburgh with. He relied on his staff for his power. He was kind of like Boris Johnson with Dominic Cummings. The authorities, they had no choice but to find both Thomas and Greasel Weir, Weir guilty of witchcraft. But Thomas Weir, he was such a prominent member of the Kirk, 
being tried as a witch would cause huge scandal and a lot of embarrassment for the church. So instead of being tried for witchcraft, Thomas Weir was charged with engaging in unnatural sexual practices, which, you know, wasn't exactly uncommon for prominent members of the church. Thomas Weir, he was intolerant of other religions, he shagged his own sister, and he turned out to be the worst human being imaginable. So, I mean, just your standard old firm supporter, really. Thomas and Griesel were tried. Griesel as a witch and Thomas as a sexual deviant and sentenced to death. Major Weir, he was burnt at the stake proclaiming, I lived like a beast, now let me die like a beast. Which is maybe why they burnt him. You know, they let him die like a, a beast with foot and mouth. Witnesses at his execution claimed to have seen Major Weir's staff twist, jump and scream in the fire. His staff was screaming. Like the civil servants working for the Tories, you know. I must say, I've got this image in my head of watching his magic staff kind of contort in the fire and scream and shout out. I imagine it'd be like setting fire to the sorting hat in Harry Potter, you know. Now, Griesel, she was hanged in the grass market the following day and she tried to increase her shame by stripping naked before she was hanged. And the house where Thomas and Griesel lived on the West Bowl was said to be the most haunted house in Edinburgh with residents of the West Bowl complaining of loud shrieks, ghostly lights and human figures appearing in the windows of the house. Like a lockdown house party. The house was demolished in 1878 for the building of Victoria Street, but still, Major Thomas Weir's ghost is regularly spotted striding the streets of Old Town Edinburgh with his large black staff. And thankfully not shagging his sister, you know. You never hear a ghost shagging, do you? They're always just walking around or closing cupboards loudly. The Witchcraft Act was introduced to Scotland in 1563, but it wasn't until the rule of King James VI and the North Berwick Witch Trials of 1590 that the killing of witches really took off in any kind of meaningful way. So why was James so obsessed with witches? As mentioned earlier, he was certainly influenced by his Danish in-laws, but undoubtedly the poisonous atmosphere James was brought up in as a child influenced his attitudes toward women. And the vast majority of those accused of being witches were women. James's intense, strict upbringing was supposed to make him an exemplary Protestant leader, the very antithesis of his Catholic mother. A miserable, boring bastard, basically. Scotland going into the 17th century was obsessed with purging unholy and evil influences and becoming a godly state. And apparently what God wanted most for us to do was to violently kill loads of women. Presbyterian Calvinist ideology encouraged a more literal interpretation of the Bible, and if Google Translate has taught us anything, is that that is a fucking disaster. Literal translations do not work. And with that in mind, women, they were deemed more susceptible to the temptations of the devil since they were weaker and more easily led. Think Eve in the Garden of Eden, although that whole Eve taking the apple thing is a ridiculous justification for mistreating women. I mean, the only reason it was Eve that took the apple is because it was a fucking apple. If the snake had offered up an egg roll and a packet of McCoys, then Adam would have snapped his hand off, I can assure you that. And James... He was being brought up in a society with such ideas about women and his relationship with his own mother was made worse throughout his childhood with the constant bad-mouthing of Mary, who was herself brutally murdered by men such as John Knox and George Buchanan, both of whom wrote vicious tracts attacking Mary. 
James as well, he his sexuality meant that he quite literally preferred the company of men, and he seems to have scorned the company of women. His deep misogyny and mistrust of women made him more inclined to believe they were poisoning and conspiring against him. James thought that women were plotting and conspiring against him, when the truth was that women just didn't really like him. Under torture, Agnes Sampson, one of the accused witches in the North Berwick witch trials, had confessed that the leader of the North Berwick coven was none other than Francis Stewart, the Earl of Bothwell, Lord Admiral of Scotland, the nephew of Mary's third husband, James Hepburn, and James's cousin. Francis Stewart's position as Lord Admiral meant that he was responsible for organising James's voyage to Denmark. This meant he was easy to implicate in the supernatural plot to destroy the king's ship, especially after he had been given partial governance of the kingdom in James's absence. Bothwell, he was one of the most powerful noblemen in the country, but was a notorious conspirator and had a propensity for violence. He was an, an unhinged Scotsman with a propensity for violence and a position of leadership. He was basically the 16th century Scott Brown. James and Bothwell had a difficult relationship to say the least. Uh, Bothwell, he'd been unhappy at James's inaction in relation to Mary's imprisonment in England. The day after Mary's execution, Bothwell came to court dressed in a full suit of armour and remonstrated with the king over his abandoning of his mother. It was the classic tell Bothwell his fancy dress but nobody else turn up in costume prank, you know? For his apparent leadership of the North Berwick Coven, Bothwell was arrested and imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle in April 1591. In June 1591, he escaped the castle and James, who was convinced that Bothwell was the devil, was terrified by his apparent supernatural cousin. He forfeited Bothwell's lands and he gave Crichton Castle to the rival Lennoxes. Bothwell retreated to the borders and became an outlaw before launching an outrageously daring raid on Holyrood Palace in December 1591 in which he almost managed to snatch the king before disappearing into apparent thin air. He had been in Holyrood and then just seemed to disappear without anyone noticing. He was like the Scottish Labour Party. A desperate and paranoid James was more eager than ever to find Bothwell and those who supported him. And one of those supporters was the ambitious Lord James Stuart, the Bonnie Earl of Murray. And Murray would die because of his association with Bothwell and his overambitiousness. But his death would become one of the most romanticised slayings in Scottish history. At least it was until the slaying of Novak Djokovic by Andy Murray in 2013. Lord James Stuart, Earl of Murray, was a, a dashing nobleman looking to make himself the most powerful man in the north of Scotland. Murray married Elizabeth Stuart, the daughter of Mary's half-brother James Stuart, and in doing so inherited the Murray earldom. Murray, he was attempting to increase his power at the expense of the neighbouring George Gordon, the Earl of Huntley. Huntley was himself handsome and ambitious. He was married to the eldest daughter of Esme Stuart, the former Duke of Lennox, Lord Chamberlain, the Frenchman who James had been besotted with as a child. Henrietta Stewart, and the Huntley family had a claim on the Murray earldom. It was like Bridget Jones's diary, except these two handsome men were fighting over an earl, not a girl, you know. To increase his standing and hold off the Huntley claim on his earldom, Murray needed to make alliances with other powerful Scottish noblemen. To this extent, he formed a rather foolish alliance with the feckless and unpredictable Bothwell, just before Bothwell's imprisonment and escape from Edinburgh Castle. He made an alliance with a maniac. You know, it'll be like Brexit Britain turning to North Korea for a trade deal in a couple of months. 
By the end of 1591, the king was desperately trying to hunt down Bothwell and he gave Huntley an open-ended commission to hunt down Bothwell and his supporters, one of whom was, of course, Huntley's local rival, the Earl of Murray. James offered Murray a pardon if he disassociated himself from Bothwell, so a relieved Earl of Murray went to Donabristol Castle in Fife and waited for a summons to appear before the king. On the morning of the 2nd of February 1592, it wasn't a summons that arrived at the castle, but a sizeable force under the command of Huntley. Murray, we, Murray was able to escape out the back while Huntley's men set fire to the castle. He escaped to the beach like he was Leonardo DiCaprio, and there he was found and he was cut down by Huntley's men. Huntley is said to have struck the first blow to the bonny Earl of Murray himself, a dagger to Murray's face, to which Murray replied, you have spoilt a face better than your own. Which seems a wee bit boastful, that, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, bragging about how good-looking you are while you're getting stabbed to death. Murray's mother, Lady Doon, commissioned a rather macabre painting of her son's dead body. Not so much a still life and more a nay life. The painting it showed the condition of Murray's dead body and the stab wounds that were inflicted upon him. Lady Doon had the painting commissioned to try and drum up public sympathy and put pressure on, on the king to ensure the appropriate justice was dealt out to Huntley. But in the event, Huntley, he was given a mere slap on the wrist. He was placed on house arrest for a week which would be the same punishment that Dominic Cummings would have received if he had murdered someone last summer. The painting of the bonny Earl of Murray's mutilated body still hangs in Darnaway Castle near Forest to this day. It's the ancestral seat of the Murray family. Bothwell remained at large and James was still terrified of his supernatural bogeyman. In July 1593, Bothwell appeared, up again apparently out of nowhere, and forced entry into the king's bedchamber at Holyrood, where he laid a naked sword, which is what they called Johnny's back then, at the bottom of his bed before again vanishing without a trace. In April 1594, James eventually caught up with Bothwell and his supporters in a raid in Leith. There was little bloodshed. The two sides fought out a stalemate, but still the king couldn't capture Bothwell. Bothwell retreated to the borders, attempting to regroup and rally his supporters. As wild and unpredictable as Bothwell was, as James's first cousin, he was a very real threat to the succession and his ultra-Presbyterian cause had gathered considerable support in Edinburgh in particular. But Bothwell failed to apply any more pressure on the king after the least stalemate, and quickly his support faded. He was forced to flee abroad in poverty in 1595, and he lived out the rest of his days on the continent, making a living as a fortune teller before his death in Naples in 1624. I mean, finishing your political career as a fortune teller, at least it wasn't strictly come dancing, I suppose. Trump, by the way, he'll finish his days by trying to predict the future, won't he? Just constantly saying, we're gonna win big. We're going to win so, so big. It's going to be so... We're going to win so, so, so big. So big. You just say that over and over and over again until he eventually just runs out of oxygen. The violent death of the Bonnie Earl of Murray and the skirmishes with Bothwell, they were very much a departure from the norm during James's reign. Once he had begun his personal rule, James and his administration achieved a far greater, a far greater degree of law and order than anything that had come before for a very, very long time in Scotland. Finally, after six attempts, Scotland had a successful James. 
But there was a blip in the relative peace and it came in the morning of the 5th of August 1600. The king was assembling a hunting party at Falkland when he was approached by Alexander Ruthven, master of Ruthven, and the younger brother of the of John Ruthven, who was the new Earl of Gowrie. John and Alexander, they were the sons of William Ruthven, the first Earl of Gowrie, who had been executed for treason for his part in the Ruthven Raid of 1582. Alexander Ruthven told the king that he captured a man he suspected of being a Jesuit spy. He had caught this mysterious man burying gold coins in a field outside of Perth and he was keeping him captive at Gowrie House in Perth. He invited the king to come and claim the treasure from the crown. The crown was in sizeable debt. James owed the Gowries themselves over £80,000. So he eagerly followed Alexander Ruthven to Perth and to Gowrie House. And why wouldn't you? Do you know what I mean? Why wouldn't you follow the son of the guy that you had executed for treason just eight years earlier? It'd been eight years. There's no way that he's still going to be holding a grudge about it. You know, and a nameless guy burying coins in a field. I mean, nothing about that sounds suspicious. Gowrie House, they were greeted by the Earl of Gowrie, who showed every hospitality, feeding James and his courtiers. The Earl offered to take James's courtiers to the garden to partake in the cherries, an impossible offer to turn down, while Alexander Ruthven took James to meet with a Jesuit spy. James, he was led up the stairs to the turret room where the prisoner was being held. Now, James's courtiers at this point, they have just left the king unattended with the son of the guy whom James had executed just eight years earlier, while they were out in the garden eating fucking cherries. I mean, my God, James's security was worse than the security of the Capitol building during a Trump rally. When James entered the turret room, he was met with a man dressed in a full set of armour, like a 17th century version of the gimp and pulp fiction. Suddenly, Alexander Ruthven pulled a dagger and declared he was avenging the death of his father, and he lunged at the king. The two men struggled. James, he was able to get to the window where he shouted, I am murderer, treason, my Lord Mar, help me. I mean, I'm sure a simple help would have sufficed there, wouldn't it? Like, surely Alexander Ruthven had time to stab him before he rambled that nonsense out of the window. James's courtiers, they ran up the stairs and a young man by the name of John Ramsay sprang into action, stabbing Ruthven in the neck. The Earl of Gowrie now came up the stair and he too was stabbed to death by John Ramsay. The stranger in the suit of armour was Alexander Henderson, the Earl of Gowrie's Chamberlain, who claimed he had been forced into the role by Gowrie. Henderson took no part in the affair and he was granted a pardon and given lands in Perthshire. He was rewarded for doing fuck all, like Baroness Ruth Davidson. A trial of the Ruthven corpses took place in front of Parliament and they were pronounced guilty of treason and their corpses were hung, drawn and quartered after the Parliament found out that they were organ donors. John Ramsay, the hero who had rescued the king, he was knighted for his bravery and later made Earl of Holderness. If this all sounds a bit far-fetched, it's because it was almost certainly bullshit. This was James's version of events, and like most of what the government tells us, it was complete and utter nonsense. What is true is James was deeply in debt to the Ruthvens. The Ruthvens being handily tried and found guilty of treason allowed James to void the sizeable debt that he owned them, that he owed them, sorry, and seize the Ruthven estates for the crown. Speculation was rife that the Ruthvens had been set up. There was also rumours that James had made an unwelcome pass at Alexander Ruthven, who reacted violently. 
Whatever the truth, the Ruffins probably had it coming. They were responsible for the murder of David Rizzio. They threatened and imprisoned James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots. They were involved in the murder of James's father, Lord Henry Darnley. And they kidnapped and imprisoned James when he was a teenager. In James's eyes, he had avenged his family. The Ruffins were pricks. And now that they were gone, no one really gave a shit about what circumstances it was under. You know, they were the, they were the Dominic Cummings of their time. Three years after the Gowrie conspiracy, James would inherit the throne of England, and he went to London with a formidable reputation as a successful king of Scotland. Scotland was more peaceful and prosperous than it had been for generations. James boasted that he achieved with the pen what others could not achieve with the sword, and he was determined to rule England in the same way. James was the first king of the entire British Isles, and he would be a successful monarch who valued peace in his kingdoms and with Europe. But... James's misogyny and paranoia led to a series of satanic panics that cost thousands of lives in Scotland. More people were tried as witches in Scotland than anywhere else in Europe. The murder of witches in Scotland in the 16th and 17th centuries has been described as legalised murder by the Scottish government. Despite several petitions, there's yet to be a formal apology made by the government for those murdered, and there's no national memorial in Scotland to commemorate the lives that were lost. And at a time when we're looking at unsavoury aspects of our history, statues and street names with links to slavery, we should acknowledge and commemorate the innocent, predominantly women, who were murdered and tortured as part of the Scottish witch craze. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that what I do is each week I match what I've been talking about on the podcast with a, a malt whiskey from Scotland. And what I try to do is I try to raise enough money each week so that I can send someone deserving a bottle of that whiskey. It could be like a an NHS frontline worker. It could be a patient parent, just a thoroughly sound person who deserves a bottle of whiskey. And you can help me raise money to send these people bottles of whiskey by going on to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Montebank Scotland. Basically, if you were to see me in real life and you're like, you know what, Daniel, I really enjoy your podcast. Can I buy you a pint? Can I get you a coffee? Well, you can do that. You go online and you can do that. And I use the money to send these wonderful people bottles of whiskey. If you're a regular listener, you kind of listen religiously every week, uh, you might want to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. You can do that at patreon.com, again, forward slash Montebank Scotland, and give me the price of a cup of coffee or a pint of beer every month. It goes a long, long way, and it helps me put a smile on people's faces. Um, so please do that if you can. You can nominate someone as well to receive a bottle of whiskey by getting in touch via email. Uh, you can get me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Montebank Scotland. You can just leave me a DM. Um, you can go on to buy me a coffee or Patreon and leave me a comment. And basically, I just choose one at random. That's how it works. Uh, today's podcast, I'm going to match with the Glen Kinchy, which is a distillery in East Lothian, um, which I think is the only distillery in East Lothian. And I'm matching today's podcast with Glen Kinchy because the North Berwick Witch Trials occurred in East Lothian. Um, so not too far away from where the, the distillery is in Pincaitland. Uh, it's a really, really cool distillery, actually. It's a busy one because it's, it's not far outside of Edinburgh, so it gets loads and loads of tourists and visitors. But it's really, really lovely, well kept. I think Johnny Walker's got something to do with it now. I don't know what the crack is. But anyway, their kind of signature 10-year-old is uh, is really, really tasty. It's a very, very light kind of pale dram, but it's got nice hints of like orange and 
um, honey, just really, really easy drinking. It's a nice dram. And you know what to do. If you'd like to receive or you you would like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of Glenkinch, you then get in touch with me. Um, please give me a follow on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Montebank Scotland. Please, 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 if you get a chance, like the podcast, rate the podcast, share the podcast, leave me a read of you, tell a friend. You have no idea how much that helps getting me up the ranking. So please, please take a moment to do that if you can. And I don't think there's anything else that I need to ask you to do. Uh, oh, wait, I've got a YouTube channel, actually. Yeah, you can get me on YouTube at Montebank Scotland as well. That's it. That's the last thing, I promise. Uh, thank you so, so much for listening, folks. I shall see you all next time. Cheerio now. Bye-bye.